Hello, my name is Marielle Harris, and I'm one of the producers for 49. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in September 2021 before Judd Devermont departed the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's the episode. Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundations. And like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served at the U.S. State Department and at the Center for Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast is everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about the Republic of Congo, also known as Congo Brazzaville. And we are joined by Robin Renee Sanders, a former U.S. ambassador to the Republic of Congo and Nigeria. Judd? What's the history of U.S. policy towards Congo B? The United States had a consulate in Brazzaville, the capital of French Equatorial Africa, and the headquarters of de Gaulle's government exile during World War II. The post was reopened after the war, and it was upgraded to an embassy when Congo Brazzaville gained independence from France in August 1960. With unrest bubbling in the former Belgian Congo just across the river, the U.S. Embassy in Brazzaville helped support evacuations of U.S. citizens and provided supplies to U.S. diplomats who stayed in Leopold, which is now known as Kinshasa. The United States had fair relations with the country's first president, Fulbert Yulu, who met with Kennedy in the White House in 1961, but he was unpopular and resigned from power after a massive labor strike in 1963. The new government showed itself to be anti-U.S. and aligned with the Soviets, the Cubans, and other left-leaning governments. Former U.S. diplomats recalled that it was impossible to conduct even the most routine business, and at least two U.S. officials were detained. On the anniversary of the government's ascent to power, the country's leader revealed a cardboard box filled with arms to a massive crowd at a stadium. The box had the USAID logo on it, and he claimed that it was smuggled into the country. As tensions continued to escalate, the United States ultimately decided to close its embassy, and the Congolese did the same in 1965. For 12 years, the United States did not have diplomatic relations with the Republic of Congo, although the United States continued to monitor the influence of communist bloc countries and the frequent incidents of insecurity, including a coup in 1968 and an assassination in 1977. Finally, the Congolese agreed not to harass U.S. diplomats, and the embassy reopened in 1977. An ambassador was appointed two years later. While still officially committed to Marxist ideology, relations with the United States started to slowly thaw. The country's new leader, Denise Sassou Nguesso, who seized power in a coup in 1979, visited Washington, D.C. in 1986 in his capacity as the chairman of the Organization of African Unity and met with Secretary of State Schultz and Vice President George H.W. Bush. Sassou worked with U.S. diplomats as part of a series of negotiations known as the Brazzaville Protocol to the New York Accords that facilitated the removal of Cuban troops from Angola and secured Namibian independence. U.S. companies were becoming more involved in the country's oil sector, and in 1990, Sassou met with President George H.W. Bush in the White House. Between December 1990 and July 1991, Congo had a sovereign national conference. It set the stage for the country's first multi-party elections in three decades. While the United States, quote, 
didn't give them much besides advice, end quote, according to a former U.S. ambassador. The process led to an election win for opposition leader Pascal Lesubu. Sasu, who only won 16% of the vote in the first round, stepped down from power in 1992. Lesubu and his rivals, including Sasu, were almost immediately at loggerheads, and clashes broke out the following year, leaving thousands dead and requiring the U.S. Embassy to evacuate. Five years later, the civil war was reignited and Sasu, backed by Angolan troops, chased Lesubu out of the country. The embassy was evacuated again and it was looted, and U.S. ambassadors were not allowed to return to Brazzaville for security reasons, except for very brief visits. Relationships have remained fairly limited in the following years, although Sasu did meet with President George W. Bush in 2006 in his capacity as African Union chairman. In recent decades, there have been numerous corruption scandals implicating Sasu and his children. In 2015, Sasu amended the Constitution to allow him to run for a third term. The U.S. government privately and publicly expressed its concern, a position that, quote, tested relations, according to then-Assistant Secretary Linda Thomas-Greenfield in a congressional testimony. Sasu won a flawed election and a conflict between the government and a militia group erupted a month later. Sasu has remained in power, making him one of the longest-serving leaders in the region. He won another election in 2021 and appointed his son, Denise Cristal, to the new cabinet in a move widely viewed to be the start of a dynastic transition of power. Nicole, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure? Okay. In Congo B, I think we have a policy failure, apologies, ambassador, because I think this is also a policy that we can debate whether it was the right approach in the first place. So in this case, in 2015, there was an effort by the U.S. interagency to look at what was called third-termism. So essentially this effort by so-called strongmen in Africa who were taking steps to sort whether they could run for an additional term beyond what they had committed to or beyond what had been the expectation when they were elected. That could involve changing legislation or going to the courts or reinterpreting the Constitution, whatever it might be. And obviously, the U.S. government was pretty concerned from a sort of democratic values perspective about preventing turnover or, you know, a free and fair election. In this case, there were a number of countries who were really important to the United States on the continent who were facing this moment. And so that included Paul Kagame and Rwanda, Blaise Kampore and Burkina Faso, Pierre and Kurnziza and Burundi, Joseph Kabila and Congo K, Congo Kinshasa. And Sasu, as we just discussed, the interagencies came together and believed that there was diplomatic engagement that might be able to help stem this. And I think there were a lot of efforts to have those conversations and kudos right to the Foreign Service and, and the Civil Service who really tried to take that on. But when we look at the record here, pretty much everyone did have a third term with the exception of Kabila who lost and, and there's a whole other complicated story there that we cover in a different podcast. But I think in this case, it were clear that it didn't work. Right. And so we didn't have the relationships or we didn't have the influence or we didn't use strong enough tools in terms of going to some of the most extreme versions of our diplomatic toolkit, things like sanctions. We didn't do a number of those things in some of these countries. And in some countries, we did a lot. And no matter how you think about it, it didn't work. So I think we can talk about whether that is something that 
the U.S. government should have believed was possible. I do think I do think it was important to discuss and absolutely it's trend. But in terms of outcome, it just didn't work. Ambassador Sanders, what should be the Biden administration's strategy towards Congo B? Here's a space to really see what's possible to do differently. In these days and times, I think for the U.S., it's complicated because we are very much a country that wants to put democracy engagement at the top, and we should here as well. But in later years and currently today, I I do think we have to balance or we, we tend to look at balancing stability with democracy, and it's a very delicate balance. In the case of Congo Brazzaville, I think that that plays at hand here. We have very much talked about to Sasu about lack of transparency in democratic elections all the time, but we haven't really, like we have in other countries, brought sanctions against Congo Brazzaville, and we haven't done some of the other harder things that we do when we don't see a democratic process taking place, particularly on the election front. The other aspect that we all bring into our conversations when we look at our relations across the, the way is the economic one. We have several large oil companies that have been in uh, Congo for decades, and we have this very delicate balance, and it's um, a relationship where we still include Congo Brazzaville, and we still include Sasu when we can. I think we recognize the stability aspect that he brings to the region, the leadership in terms of managing the security environment in the Central Africa region, but you know, we realize that the democratic process is not there. And he hasn't allowed the democratic process to manifest itself. So we just have to figure out, you know, what's the right balance. And I think we might have to begin to direct that balance toward being a little bit more heavy handed. Because I think that for me anyway, I'm worried about future stability of the country as the younger people, which are certainly the larger elements of the population, become very frustrated and feel very, very disenfranchised with the fact that they don't think that their voices are being heard. Okay, Judd, tall but very important orders there. How do we make it happen? You know, I think that Ambassador Sanders really nailed it, that this is a country where even though it doesn't get a lot of attention, sometimes in Washington, we have a variety of interests in Congo Brazzaville. Because Sasu is an elder statesman in the region, he's able to influence what's happening in other countries because of the oil. And so we have to figure out, I mean, I think this is the case in a lot of countries, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, we can be talking about some of our deep concerns about democracy and governance in this country. um, And at the same time, recognizing we have other interests, we didn't talk about China ambassador, but you know, this is a key country for the Chinese in in Africa. In fact, the Chinese relieved some of uh, Brazzaville's debt so they could get an IMF loan. Um, So what I would suggest is a couple of things. First of all, working on the interagency to do some of the things Ambassador Sanders has suggested, understanding what the pros and cons and, and where does Brazzaville fit in our interests. Um, I think that we should be making strong statements, as I think, Ambassador, you suggested, uh, but really investing in the civil society, talking about some of the political prisoners that still exist in Congo that haven't been able to compete in elections. And then we're at this really important and perhaps dangerous inflection point because Sasu is already thinking about his succession and we know how challenging successions can be, particularly if you're going to hand it off 
to your son. If that is his intention, it's only speculation right now. So this is the time to build relationships across the political spectrum and with civil society to have some maybe some harder edge conversations, as you suggest, Ambassador Sanders, with Sasu and make sure that in a region where we're seeing instability, like just north of it in Cameroon or in Central African Republic, that the Congo is able to make a transition that isn't going to be disruptive or problematic or lead to more humanitarian disaster. Ambassador, I want to get your reaction to that, but if there's a big idea that you want to put on the table, we'd love to hear it. You know, the whether I would call it a big idea, I would like to call it a big approach. And, you know, I know President Sasu extremely well. And it's not so much the idea, it's the approach. How do you approach this leader in the region who amasses an incredible amount of power and influence, who has influence certainly with the the leadership of France and the leadership of China? There are a lot of players here. We're not the only one, and we're not necessarily the most important one for Congo-Brazzaville. It's a Francophone. It's a French former colony. You have, uh, you know, French professionals or officials amassed throughout the entire government structure there. You have a huge role that the, the UK also plays there. So we're not the only player. What we could do in terms of approach is really work with those partners saying, you know, we don't want to see Congo Brazzaville blow up. We know that President Sasu is there. And so my idea would be, or my approach would be taking into account everything that I know about his personality and, you know, what he believes in and how he sees his leadership there. I think that we could work with him on saying, Mr. President, let us help you build a transition. You know, how do we give you the accoutrements that you want. Uh, I don't mean monetarily in any way, but I mean the visibility, the dignity. This is a very proud person. And so how do we provide that framework and work with you and put in a time period, you know, whether it's two years or what have you, where we can work with you, Mr. President, to transition to an environment that allows for a democratic and open election. That is not going to be a popular comment that I'm making, but I'm making it in the context of really looking at lives saved, uh, looking at infrastructure saved, looking at the entire impact of a, another civil war in that region. Okay, let's lighten the load a little here. Ambassador, can you tell us a little bit about Congo's art scene? I can recognize a piece of art from Congo from, you know, no matter where I am in the world, because it's a very specialized fluid technique particularly in their paintings. And one of the areas that it was damaged a lot during the war, but people still came there, it was the art center, you know? And so uh, one of the things I did with my limited ambassador uh, self-help fund monies was to help refurbish that art center because art is such a reflection of society, whether it's on the political side, whether it's on the economic side, whether it's on the social side. And that was very vibrant in Congo then, and it's very vibrant in Congo today. And it's certainly, if you want to know about a country, I always say, see what their artists are saying. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.